Part One of Story Nineteen of Lucy Maud Montgomery's Short Stories, nineteen o two to nineteen o three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lucy Maud Montgomery's Short Stories, nineteen o two to nineteen o three, by Lucy Maud Montgomery. STORY Nineteen, THE RUNNING AWAY OF CHESTER PART One. Chester did the chores with unusual vim that night. His lips were set, and there was an air of resolution as plainly visible on his small freckled face as if it had been stamped there. Mrs. Elwell saw him flying around, and her grim features took on a still grimmer expression. "'Chess is mighty lively to-night,' she muttered. I suppose he's in a gog to be off on some foolishness with Henry Wilson. Well, he won't, and he needn't think it. Lige Barton, the hired man, also thought this was Chester's purpose, but he took a more lenient view of it than did Mrs. Elwell. The little chap is going through things with a rush this evening, he reflected. Guess he's laying out for a bit of fun with the Wilson boy. But Chester was not planning anything connected with Henry Wilson, who lived on the other side of the pond, and was the only chum he possessed. After the chores were done, he lingered a little while around the barns, getting his courage keyed up to the necessary pitch. Chester Stevens was an orphan without kith or kin in the world, unless his father's stepsister, Mrs. Harriet Elwell, could be called so. His parents had died in his babyhood, and Mrs. Elwell had taken him to bring up. She was a harsh woman with a violent temper, and she had scolded and worried the boy all his short life. Upton people said it was a shame, but nobody felt called upon to interfere. Mrs. Elwell was not a person one would care to make an enemy of. She eyed Chester sourly when he went in, expecting some request to be allowed to go with Henry, and prepared to refuse it sharply. "'Aunt Harriet,' said Chester suddenly, "'can I go to school this year?' It begins to-morrow. No, said Mrs. Elwell, when she had recovered from her surprise at this unexpected question. You've had schoolin' in plenty, more'n I ever had, and all you're goin' to get. But Aunt Harriet, persisted Chester, his face flushed with earnestness, I'm nearly thirteen, and I can barely read and write a little. The other boys are ever so far ahead of me. I don't know anything. You know enough to be disrespectful exclaimed Mrs. Elwell. I suppose you want to go to school to idle away your time as you do at home, lazy good-for-nothing that you are. Chester thought of the drudgery that had been his portion all his life. He resented being called lazy when he was willing enough to work, but he made one more appeal. If you'll let me go to school this year, I'll work twice as hard out of school to make up for it. Indeed I will. Do let me go, Aunt Harriet. I haven't been to school a day in over a year." "'Let's hear no more of this nonsense,' said Mrs. Elwell, taking a bottle from the shelf above her with the air of one who closes a discussion. "'Here, run down to the bridge and get me this bottle full of vinegar at Jacob's store. Be smart, too, do you hear? I ain't going to have you idle around the bridge, neither. If you ain't back in twenty minutes it won't be well for you.' Chester did his errand at the bridge with a heart full of bitter disappointment and anger. "'I won't stand it any longer,' he muttered. "'I'll run away. I don't care where, so long as it's away from her. I wish I could get out west on the harvest excursions.' 
On his return home, as he crossed the yard in the dusk, he stumbled over a stick of wood and fell. The bottle of vinegar slipped from his hand and was broken on the doorstep. Mrs. Elwell saw the accident from the window. She rushed out and jerked the unlucky lad to his feet. "'Take that, you sulky little cub!' she exclaimed, cuffing his ears soundly. "'I'll teach you to break and spill things you're sent for. You did it on purpose. Get off to bed with you this instant!' Chester crept off to his garret chamber with a very sullen face. He was too used to being sent to bed without any supper, to care much for that, although he was hungry. But his whole being was in a tumult of rebellion over the injustice that was meted out to him. "'I won't stand it,' he muttered over and over again. "'I'll run away. I won't stay here.' To talk of running away was one thing. To do it without a cent in your pocket or a place to run to was another. But Chester had a great deal of determination in his make-up when it was fairly roused, and his hard upbringing had made him older and shrewder than his years. He lay awake late that night, thinking out ways and means, but could arrive at no satisfactory conclusion. The next day Mrs. Elwell said, "'Chess, Abner Stearns wants you to go up there for a fortnight while Tom Bixby is away and drive the milk-wagon of mornings and do the chores for Mrs. Stearns. You might as well put in the time for harvest that way as any other.' "'So hustle off, and mind you behave yourself.' Chester heard the news gladly. He had not yet devised any feasible plan for running away, and he always liked to work at the Stearns' place. To be sure, Mrs. Elwell received all the money he earned, but Mrs. Stearns was kind to him, and though he had to work hard and constantly, he was well fed and well treated by all. The following fortnight was a comparatively happy one for the lad, but he did not forget his purpose of shaking the dust of Upton from his feet as soon as possible, and he cudgelled his brains trying to find a way. On the evening when he left the Stearns' homestead, Mr. Stearns paid him for his fortnight's work, much to the boy's surprise, for Mrs. Elwell had always insisted that all such money should be paid directly to her. Chester found himself the possessor of four dollars, an amount of riches that almost took away his breath, he had never in his whole life owned more than ten cents at a time. As he tramped along the road home, he kept his hand in his pocket, holding fast to the money, as if he feared it would otherwise dissolve into thin air. His mind was firmly made up. He would run away once and for all. This money was rightly his. He'd earned every cent of it. It would surely last him until he found employment elsewhere. At any rate, he would go, and even if he starved, he would never come back to Aunt Harriet's. When he reached home, he found Mrs. Elwell in an unusual state of worry. Lige had given warning, and this on the verge of harvest. "'Did Stearns say anything about coming down to-morrow to pay me for your work?' she asked. "'No, ma'am. He didn't say a word about it,' said Chester boldly. "'Well, I hope he will. Take yourself off to bed, Chess. I'm sick of seeing you standing there, on one foot or t'other, like a gander.' Chester had been shifting about uneasily. He realized that, if his project did not miscarry, he would not see his aunt again, and his heart softened to her. Harsh as she was, she was the only protector he had ever known, and the boy had a vague wish to carry away with him some kindly word or look from her. Such, however, was not forthcoming, and Chester obeyed her command and took himself off to the garret. Here he sat down and reflected on his plans. He must go that very night. When Mr. Stearns failed to appear on the morrow, Mrs. Elwell was quite likely to march up and demand the amount of Chester's wages. 
It would all come out then, and he would lose his money, besides, no doubt, getting severely punished into the bargain. His preparations did not take long. He had nothing to carry with him. The only decent suit of clothes he possessed was his well-worn Sunday one. This he put on, carefully stowing away in his pocket the precious four dollars. He had to wait until he thought his aunt was asleep, and it was about eleven when he crept downstairs, his heart quaking within him, and got out by the porch window. When he found himself alone in the clear moonlight of the August night, a sense of elation filled his cramped little heart. He was free, and he would never come back here, never. "'Wished I could have seen Henry to say good-bye to him, though,' he muttered, with a wistful glance at the big house across the pond, where the unconscious Henry was sleeping soundly, with never a thought of moonlight flittings for any one in his curly head. Chester meant to walk to Roxbury Station ten miles away. Nobody knew him there, and he could catch the morning train. Late as it was, he kept to fields and wood-roads, lest he might be seen and recognized. It was three o'clock when he reached Roxbury, and he knew the train did not pass through until six. With the serenity of a philosopher, who is starting out to win his way in the world, and means to make the best of things, Chester curled himself up in the hollow space of a big lumber-pile behind the station, and so tired was he that he fell soundly asleep in a few minutes. Chester was awakened by the shriek of the express at the last crossing before the station. In a panic of haste he scrambled out of his lumber and dashed to the station-house, where a sleepy, ill-natured agent stood behind the ticket-window. He looked sharply enough at the freckled, square-jawed boy who asked for a second-class ticket to Belltown. Chester's heart quaked within him at the momentary thought that the ticket-agent recognized him. He had an agonized vision of being collared without ceremony and hailed straightway back to Aunt Harriet. When the ticket and his change were pushed out to him he snatched them and fairly ran. Bolted as if the police were after him, reflected the agent, who did not sell many tickets, and so had time to take a personal interest in the purchasers thereof. I've seen that youngster before, though I can't recollect where. He's got a most fearful determined look. Chester drew an audible sigh of relief when the train left the station. He was fairly off now, and felt that he could defy even curious railway officials. It was not his first train-ride, for Mrs. Elwell had once taken him to Belltown to get an aching tooth extracted, but it was certainly his first under such exhilarating circumstances, and he meant to enjoy it. To be sure, he was very hungry, but that, he reflected, was only what he would probably be many times before he made his fortune, and it was just as well to get used to it. Meanwhile it behooved him to keep his eyes open. On the road from Roxbury to Belltown there was not much to be seen that morning that Chester did not see. The train reached Belltown about noon. He did not mean to stop long there. It was too near Upton. From the conductor on the train he found that a boat left Belltown for Montrose at two in the afternoon. Montrose was a hundred miles from Upton, and Chester thought he would be safe there. To Montrose, accordingly, he decided to go, but the first thing was to get some dinner. He went into a grocery store and bought some crackers and a bit of cheese. He had somewhere picked up the idea that crackers and cheese were about as economical food as you could find, for adventurous youths starting out on small capital. He found his way to the only public square Belltown boasted, and munched his food hungrily on a bench under the trees. He would go to Montrose and there find something to do. Later he would gradually work his way out west, where there was more room for an ambitious small boy to expand and grow. 
Chester dreamed some dazzling dreams as he sat there on the bench under the Belltown chestnuts. Passers-by, if they noticed him at all, saw merely a rather small, poorly clad boy with a great many freckles, a square jaw and shrewd, level-gazing grey eyes. But this same lad was mapping out a very brilliant future for himself as people passed him heedlessly by. He would go out west, somehow or other, some time or other, and make a fortune. Then, perhaps, he would go back to Upton for a visit and shine in his splendour before all his old neighbours. It all seemed very easy and alluring. Sitting there in the quiet little Belltown Square—Chester, you see, possessed imagination—that, together with the crackers and cheese, so cheered him up that he felt ready for anything. He was aroused from a dream of passing Aunt Harriet by in lofty scorn and a glittering carriage, by the shrill whistle of the boat. Chester pocketed his remaining crackers and cheese, and his visions also, and was once more his alert, wide-awake self. He had inquired the way to the wharf from the grocer, so he found no difficulty in reaching it. When the boat steamed down the muddy little river, Chester was on board of her. He was glad to be out of Belltown, for he was anything but sure that he would not encounter some Upton people as long as he was in it. They often went to Belltown on business, but never to Montrose. There were not many passengers on the boat, and Chester scrutinized them all so sharply in turn that he could have sworn to each and every one of them for years afterward, had it been necessary. The one he liked best was a middle-aged lady who sat just before him on the opposite side of the deck. She was plump and motherly-looking, with a fresh rosy face and beaming blue eyes. "'If I was looking for anyone to adopt me, I'd pick her,' said Chester to himself. The more he looked at her, the better he liked her. He labelled her in his mind as the nice rosy lady. The nice rosy lady noticed Chester staring at her after a while. She smiled promptly at him, a smile that seemed fairly to irradiate her round face, and then began fumbling in an old-fashioned reticule she carried, from which she presently extracted a chubby little paper bag. "'If you like candy, little boy,' she said to Chester, "'here is some of my sugar-taffy for you.' Chester did not exactly like being called a little boy. But her voice and smile were irresistible and won his heart straight away. He took the candy with a shy, "'Thank you, ma'am,' and sat holding it in his hand. "'Eat it,' commanded the rosy lady authoritatively. "'That is what taffy is for, you know.' So Chester ate it. It was the most delicious thing he had ever tasted in his life, and filled a void which even the crackers and cheese had left vacant. The rosy lady watched every mouthful he ate as if she enjoyed it more than he did. When he had finished the taffy she smiled one of her sociable smiles again and said, "'Well, what do you think of it?' "'It's the nicest taffy I ever ate,' answered Chester enthusiastically, as if he were a connoisseur of all kinds of taffies. The rosy lady nodded, well pleased. "'That is just what everyone says about my sugar-taffy. Nobody up our way can match it, though goodness knows they try hard enough. My great-grandmother invented the recipe herself, and it has been in our family ever since. I'm real glad you liked it.' She smiled at him again, as if his appreciation of her taffy was a bond of good fellowship between them. She did not know it, but, nevertheless, she was filling the heart of a desperate small boy, who had run away from home, with hope and encouragement and self-reliance. If there were such kind folks as this in the world, why, he would get along all right. 
the rosy lady's smiles and taffy, the smiles much more than the taffy, went far to thaw out of him a certain hardness and resentfulness against people in general that Aunt Harriet's harsh treatment had instilled into him. Chester instantly made a resolve that when he grew stout and rosy and prosperous he would dispense smiles and taffy and good cheer generally to all forlorn small boys on boats and trains. It was almost dark when they reached Montrose. Chester lost sight of the rosy lady when they left the boat, and it gave him a lonesome feeling, but he could not indulge in that for long at a time. Here he was at his destination, at dark, in a strange city, a hundred miles from home. "'The first thing is to find somewhere to sleep,' he said to himself, resolutely declining to feel frightened, although the temptation was very strong. Montrose was not really a very big place. It was only a bustling little town of some twenty thousand inhabitants, but to Chester's eyes it was a vast metropolis. He had never been in any place bigger than Belltown, and in Belltown you could see one end of it at least, no matter where you were. Montrose seemed endless to Chester as he stood at the head of Water Street, and gazed in bewilderment along one of its main business avenues. A big, glittering, whirling place where one small boy could so easily be swallowed up that he would never be heard from again. Chester, after paying his fare to Montrose and buying his cheese and crackers, had just sixty cents left. This must last him until he found work, so that the luxury of lodgings was out of the question, even if he had known where to look for them. To be sure, there were benches in a public square right in front of him, but Chester was afraid that if he curled up on one of them for the night a policeman might question him, and he did not believe he could give a very satisfactory account of himself. In his perplexity he thought of his cosy lumber-pile at Roxbury Station, and remembered that when he had left the boat he had noticed a large vacant lot near the wharf which was filled with piles of lumber. Back to this he went, and soon succeeded in finding a place to stow himself. His last waking thought was that he must be up and doing bright and early the next morning, and that it must surely be longer than twenty-four hours since he had crept downstairs and out of Aunt Harriet's porch window at Upton. Montrose seemed less alarming by daylight, which was not so bewildering as the blinking electric lights. Chester was up betimes, ate the last of his cheese and crackers, and started out at once to look for work. He determined to be thorough, and he went straight into every place of business he came to, from a blacksmith's forge to a department store, and boldly asked the first person he met if they wanted a boy there. There was, however, one class of places Chester shunned determinedly. He never went into a liquor saloon. The last winter he had been allowed to go to school at Upton. His teacher had been a pale, patient little woman, who hated the liquor traffic with all her heart. She herself had suffered bitterly through it, and she instilled into her pupils a thorough aversion to it. Chester would have chosen death by starvation before he would have sought for employment in a liquor saloon. But there certainly did not seem room for him anywhere else. Nobody wanted a boy. The answer to his question was invariably no. As the day wore on, Chester's hopes and courage went down to zero, but he still tramped doggedly about. He would be thorough, at least. Surely somewhere in this big place, where everyone seemed so busy, there must be something for him to do. Once there seemed a chance of success. He had gone into a big provision store and asked the clerk behind the counter if they wanted a boy. 
"'Well, we do,' said the clerk, looking him over critically. "'But I hardly think you'll fit the bill. However, come in and see the boss.' He took Chester into a dark, grimy little inner office where a fat, stubby man was sitting before a desk with his feet upon it. "'Hey, what?' he said when the clerk explained. "'Looking for the place. Why, sonny, you're not half big enough.' "'Oh, I'm a great deal bigger than I look.' cried Chester breathlessly. That is, sir, I mean I'm ever so much stronger than I look. I'll work hard, sir, ever so hard, and I'll grow. The fat stubby man roared with laughter. What was grim earnest to poor Chester was a joke to him. No doubt you will, my boy, he said genially, but I'm afraid you'll hardly grow fast enough to suit us. Boys aren't like pigweed, you know. No, no, our boy must be a big strapping fellow of eighteen or nineteen. He'll have a deal of heavy lifting to do. Chester went out of the store with a queer choking in his throat. For one horrible moment he thought he was going to cry. He, Chester Stevens, who had run away from home to do splendid things. A nice ending that would be to his fine dreams. He thrust his hands into his pockets and strode along the street, biting his lips fiercely. He would not cry. No, he would not. And he would find work. Chester did not cry, but neither, alas, did he find work. He parted with ten cents of his precious hoard for more crackers, and he spent the night again in the lumber-yard. "'Perhaps I'll have better luck to-morrow,' he thought hopefully. But it really seemed as if there were to be no luck for Chester except bad luck. Day after day passed, and though he tramped resolutely from street to street, and visited every place that seemed to offer any chance, he could get no employment. In spite of his pluck, his heart began to fail him. At the end of a week Chester woke up among his lumber to a realization that he was at the end of his resources. He had just five cents left out of the four dollars that were to have been the key to his fortune. He sat gloomily on the wall of his sleeping apartment, and munched the one solitary cracker he had left. It must carry him through the day unless he got work. The five cents must be kept for some dire emergency. He started uptown rather aimlessly. In his week's wanderings he had come to know the city very well, and no longer felt confused with its size and bustle. He envied every busy boy he saw. Back in Upton he had sometimes resented the fact that he was kept working continually and was seldom allowed an hour off. Now he was burdened with spare time. It certainly did not seem as if things were fairly divided, he thought. And then he thought no more just then, for one of the queer spells in his head came on. He had experienced them at intervals during the last three days. Something seemed to break loose in his head and spin wildly round and round, while houses and people and trees danced and wobbled all about him. Chester vaguely wondered if this could be what Aunt Harriet had been wont to call a judgment. But then he had done nothing very bad— Nothing that would warrant a judgment, he thought. It was surely no harm to run away from a place where you were treated so bad, and where they did not seem to want you. Chester felt bitter whenever he thought of Aunt Harriet. Presently he found himself in the market square of Montrose. It was market day, and the place was thronged with people from the surrounding country settlements. Chester had hoped that he might pick up a few cents, holding a horse or cow for somebody, or carrying a market-basket, but no such chance offered itself. He climbed up on some bales of pressed hay in one corner, and sat there moodily. There was a dejection in the very dangle of his legs over the bales. Chester, you see, was discovering what many a boy before him has discovered. 
that it is a good deal easier to sit down and make a fortune in dreams than it is to go out into the world and make it. Two men were talking to each other near him. At first Chester gave no heed to their conversation, but presently a sentence made him prick up his ears. "'Yes, there's a pretty fair crop out at Hopedale,' one man was saying, "'but whether it's going to be got in in good shape is another matter. It's terrible hard to get any help.' Every spare man jack far and wide has gone west on them everlasting harvest excursions. Salome Whitney at the Mount Hope farm is in a predicament. She's got a hired man, but he can't harvest grain all by himself. She spent the whole of yesterday driving around, trying to get a couple of men or boys to help him, but I don't know if she got any one or not. The men moved out of earshot at this juncture, but Chester got down from the bales with a determined look. If workers were wanted in Hopedale, that was the place for him. He had done a man's work at harvest time in Upton the year before. Lige Barton had said so himself. Hope and courage returned with a rush. He accosted the first man he met, and asked if he could tell him the way to Hopedale. "'Reckon I can, Sonny. I live in the next district. Want to go there? If you wait till evening I can give you a lift part of the way. It's five miles out.' "'Thank you, sir,' said Chester firmly. "'But I must go at once, if you'll kindly direct me. It's important.' "'Well, it's a straight road. That's Abelmarle Street down there. Follow it till it takes you out to the country, and then keep straight on till you come to a church painted yellow and white. Turn to your right, and over the hill is Hopedale. But you'd better wait for me. You don't look fit to walk five miles.' But Chester was off. Walk five miles? Pooh! He could walk twenty, with hope to lure him on. Abelmarle Street finally frayed off into a real country road. Chester was glad to find himself out in the country once more, with the great golden fields basking on either side, and the wooded hills beyond, purple with haze. He had grown to hate the town, with its cold, unheeding faces. It was good to breathe clear air again, and feel the soft, springy soil of the ferny roadside under his tired little feet. Long before the five miles were covered, Chester began to wonder if he would hold out to the end of them. He had to stop and rest frequently, when those queer dizzy spells came on. His feet seemed like lead, but he kept doggedly on. He would not give in now. The white and yellow church was the most welcome sight that had ever met his eyes. Over the hill he met a man, and inquired the way to Mount Hope Farm. Fortunately it was nearby. At the gate Chester had to stop again to recover from his dizziness. He liked the look of the place, with its great, comfortable barns and quaint, roomy old farmhouse, all set down in a trim quadrangle of beeches and orchards. There was an appearance of peace and prosperity about it. "'If only Miss Salome Whitney will hire me,' thought Chester wistfully, as he crept up the slope. "'I'm afraid she'll say I'm too small. Wished I could stretch three inches all at once. Wished I wasn't so dizzy. Wished—' What Chester's third wish was will never be known, for just as he reached the kitchen door the worst dizzy spell of all came on. Trees, barns, well-sweep, all whirled around him with the speed of wind. He reeled and fell, a limp, helpless little body, on Miss Salome Whitney's broad, spotless, sandstone doorstep. End of Part 1 of The Running Away of Chester This story continues in Part 2